Thank you, worship team. Uh, good morning, IEC. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Pastor Steve Winstead, and we are continuing our series in the book of Ruth. We've been in here for the last four weeks, and today we pick up in Ruth chapter 3. And what we've seen so far, just in way of review, because it's always good to know where we are, in this story in the book of Ruth, there's a man named Elimelech who's married to a woman named Naomi. And a famine hits the land, and in the midst of this famine, this man Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, doesn't act like it at all. Instead, he ventures, he journeys to a far-off land that's 50 miles away from where he lived called Moab. The Moabites worshipped a cruel and heinous false god known as Chemosh. While there, he, we never see Elimelech consult God. We don't see him pray. We don't see him trusting God as he's taking this journey. No, he goes of his own accord and things seem to go well for a while. That's often how it is whenever we come up with our own solutions and we don't consult God. We're pretty good at finding solutions to problems, but if it's not the solution the Lord has led us to, it'll be fleeting. It'll be temporary. And here they go, and things go well for a while, so well that they end up staying for ten years. And in that ten years, we see Elimelech die, and we see the two, his two sons, Malon and Chilion, both die as well, leaving his wife Naomi as a widow. And to be a widow in the ancient world is a desperate, desperate situation. You're in trouble. You need someone to take care of you, yet everybody is gone, with the exception of these two Moabite daughter-in-laws. Ruth hears there's food in Bethlehem, goes back there in a literal, physical act of repentance, returning to God, returning to God's people. And as she goes, she takes these two Moabite girls on this 50-mile journey. Somewhere along the journey, she turns to them, and six times she tells them, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, I have nothing for you. Turn back, go to your people, go to your family. And one of them, Orpah does. The other, Ruth, she clings. That's what the name means, to cling, or to be a friend. And she sticks to Naomi, and we get that great verse, Perhaps the most famous verse in this book, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where she declares, Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and I will die with you. I've counted the cost. I'm in this to life. And that's what a convert, a redeemed child of God, does. That's who we are, church. We are those who've counted the cost and follow Jesus Christ. Well, last week we saw in chapter 2 a single day. And in this single day, she happens to work in the fields of a man named Boaz, who's a redeemer, and he feeds her a meal and is exceedingly kind to her. Well, today where we pick up in chapter 3, it's another single day. But it's a day that is six to seven weeks after the first. So between chapter 2 and 3, there's a seven-week time period. 
And during that time period, Ruth is gleaning the fields and Boaz is showing up at work every day, observing and watching what happens. Now in chapter 3, this is a difficult text. It's actually difficult because it appears when you first read it to be highly scandalous. In fact, if you're a father here with daughters, the advice we're going to see Naomi give to Ruth, you would want no one giving to your daughter. This is actually advice that in most instances, in 99.9% of occurrences, this is terrible advice. So we'll deal with that today. And as we do, there's a, we need to see a difference in Scripture. When we read Scripture, there is what is called descriptive text. You'll hear me use these terms time to time. Descriptive means it's just simply telling what happened. It's, it's talking about the historical account of God's people and what occurred there. It's not meant for us to say, thus saith the Lord, we should do exactly as the people in this story did. Then there's prescriptive text. Prescriptive text are, this is the prescription of how you're to live, what you're to do. We saw a prescriptive text. I read it earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 3, the prescriptive text for church leadership on how the qualities of the elders are to be. That's prescriptive. We follow that. We cling to that. But what we're going to see today is a descriptive text. So it's important for us to know that as we journey through. So we're going to read Ruth chapter 3. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter. Ruth chapter 3. If you would please stand for the reading of God's good and holy Word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man, until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went down to lie at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. I will do, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down till morning. 
So she lay down at his feet till morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it out and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You shall not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, we, um, let, let me pray for us. God, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken today. So come, Holy Spirit, speak the truth through your word and through your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 1, we get Naomi. And she, it's, it's as if she's verbally processing what's going on. Should I not tell Ruth this opportunity? Should I not seek to find rest for Ruth? You see, Naomi knows something that no one else knows. She's got information that other people don't have. She knows it's a, Boaz is going to thresh that night to the threshing floor. And it'll be the last opportunity for Ruth to approach Boaz. Ruth has been working in the field for six to seven weeks and the harvest is over. They brought it in and once they bring it into the threshing floor, they're going to sleep with it to protect it and then they'll sell it out to market on the following days. And Ruth and Boaz won't see each other. Naomi also knows that God has made a way for widows and orphans and those in need to be cared for. You see, in ancient Israel, the government the uh, administration, the courts, the city officials, they weren't assigned to care for the poor and the needy. It was God's people who cared for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the needy. It's always been that way. In fact, that's the way God still wants to care for those in need is through His people, through the church. It starts with us caring for one another, making sure we're taken care of. And then we look out to share the good news with those who don't know Him. So here, Naomi knows this. She knows of a, what's called a Leverite marriage. This sounds pretty odd to us, uh, probably regardless of what culture we're from. A Leverite marriage was where when a man died and he didn't have any children to take care of his widowed wife. His widowed wife would marry the closest relative, and that relative... When they had a child together, that child would be credited back to the deceased husband. It was God's way of keeping everything, uh, inheritance being passed down properly, and God's way of providing. So Ruth knows this, but she also knows something else. She knows Boaz. She knows Boaz is a redeemer. 
Oh, not everybody else knows that, but Ruth knows that. And this scandalous, crazy-sounding advice that Naomi's going to give to Ruth, we have to understand that Naomi knows something. It's given in light of a Redeemer. So Naomi is about to tell Ruth something that she, uh, where she can go find rest for her soul, and it's in uh, this man Boaz. So in verse 2, she says, Is not Boaz our relative? And she says, See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Tonight, this is the last night, Boaz and the men are going to gather, and they're going to gather at the threshing floor, they're going to thresh the barley, and then they're going to have a party. They're going to celebrate, because the harvest has come in, and this is good, glorious news. You see, threshing is interesting work. I've never done it, perhaps some of you have, but what you would do is, whenever you planted a crop of barley, you would let it grow and take care of it. If you're growing a crop, you always want to fight the weeds. Think about weeds. If you've ever planted, farmed, tried to take care of a yard, what does it take to get a weed to grow? Absolutely nothing. What does it take to stop a weed? It takes war. You declare war on the weeds and you go and fight the weeds and you try to take them out. Why? So that the barley, so that the crop can grow healthy. It takes a lot of work to get a healthy crop to grow, but to get weeds to grow, it takes nothing. The problem is when barley grows, there's a type of weed called a tear. And the tear will grow with it as well. And your naked eye can't tell the difference. They look the same. So you have to wait for the winnowing. And at the winnowing, you would take the barley and you would take the tares. You don't know which is which. And you would get where a breeze is blowing and you would throw the barley with the tares into the air. And the breeze would catch the tares because they weigh nothing and would blow them off. But the barley has weight. It has substance. It would fall to the ground. You see, this is, this is a picture of a few things. One, what does it take for us to get sin to grow in our life? Nothing. You just ignore the Lord. You don't turn to Him regularly. You don't, if you don't go to war against sin, sin is having its way with you. You see, so many Christians settle for a moral Christian life. If I can just keep from doing the big sins, the ones that are really bad, then I'll be all right. And we sort of have within the church often what we consider acceptable sins. It's just a little gossip. It's just a little small lie. It's just a little ill thought of a person. And those acceptable sins grow. And if we aren't at war with them, they will continue to grow and they will steal the joy that you should have in the Lord. Sin is, wants to deceive you, to make you think, this isn't that bad of sin. It's not that big of a deal. Sin wants to rob your joy that you should find in the Lord. But to get a good harvest to grow, to get barley to grow, it takes work. And for the fruit of the Spirit to grow in your life, you are going to continually have to be warring against sin and encouraging, feeding on the Word of the Lord, being in community with other believers who can 
correct your sin because they love you and they know that sin ruins you. We don't correct one another's sin because we're trying to be harsh. We lovingly do it because we know that sin is destructive. This also is another picture, a much more difficult picture, a picture of the end times. You see, when Jesus returns, He says He will go to the winning fort and He's going to separate the barley or wheat from the tares. Because sometimes within the church, there can be those who are within the church who may look the part. They can talk like a Christian. They can keep some of the rules and be moral like a Christian. But as far as ever truly being redeemed and finding their joy and their hope fully in the Lord, they may know some of the truth, but they haven't been converted. They haven't been redeemed. They haven't been saved. And at the end time, Jesus will separate those who are His and those who aren't. And in one of the most difficult images that should haunt all of us, should disturb all of us, that we should never become numb to, Jesus said He'll take the tares and throw them into a fire. That's a picture of those who are unregenerate, who don't know the Lord. That should pain us and hurt us, church. Don't ever grow numb to that. You see, God has given us a mission we're a church, and the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what is the work of the ministry? Well, we love one another, we encourage one another, we love the Lord, and we go declare the gospel. It's all that He puts in our path through all the means that He gives us. That's the work that He's called us to. And you and I, we're only on this earth a millisecond in light of eternity. I pray we'll be faithful with this little time that the Lord has given us here to impact all of eternity. Now in verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth, get yourself cleaned up, Ruth. Put some oil. Get yourself smelling good. Get yourself looking good, Ruth. You know, all that Boaz has seen is Ruth working hard and she's out in the fields sweating, messy, looking like she's working hard. She says, you get yourself looking really good and you go down to the threshing floor and you wait till he falls asleep. You wait till he's had a lot of food and a lot of drink and they've partied and the party's over and he's lying down and when he lies down, you go uncover his feet and lay down there and when he wakes up, here's what you say. I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you want. Now that, on the surface, sounds as scandalous as it could be. No father would want their daughter ever taking that advice. Wait till a guy has had a party and he's laying down going to sleep and then go lay down at his feet and wait for him to wake up. That's a terrible idea. And it's still a terrible idea. <laughs> this text is descriptive. So young women, do not follow this pattern. This is not how you go find a husband or find a man. But we're going to see some things in here about that. But you've got to remember, what does Naomi know? She knows there's a Redeemer. She knows there's a Redeemer, and there's a certain way that you approach a Redeemer. You approach the Redeemer low, humble, at His feet. Faithful begging for mercy and grace. 
You see, how do we come to Jesus? We come to Jesus at the foot of the cross, lowly, humble, praying that he'll extend grace to us. Throughout Scripture, people approach Jesus all sorts of ways. You're going to see lots of ways that people approach him. You'll see the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come to Jesus and they want to know, how are you getting such a big crowd? We want the crowds, Jesus. You don't come to Jesus to be popular, to get a crowd, to be more well-known. Pilate comes to Jesus and is asking him questions, and Jesus says, is this just an intellectual curiosity? You don't come to Jesus just out of an intellectual curiosity. Herod wanted Jesus to do miracles. You don't come to Jesus just for miracles. The multitude wanted Jesus to feed them. You don't come for Jesus just for the food or just for the perks, just for the, what we hope is health, wealth, and prosperity. No, Jesus doesn't promise us that at all. In fact, he promises hardship and difficulty in life. Follow Jesus. He says persecution is promised. It will come. Church, don't be surprised when it comes. In fact, when persecution comes, it's a sign that you're His. Because the enemy doesn't like the children of God. The rich young ruler came thinking, I've done a lot of good works. Surely, Jesus, you'd want me on your team. You don't approach Jesus by good works. Simon the magician came and he said, I want to buy the Holy Spirit so I can do miracles. You don't come to Jesus just so you can put on a show. Judas came to Jesus wanting power and authority in the kingdom, and we see that that's not how you come to Jesus. No, there are lots of wrong ways to approach the Savior, but there's only one way to come to Jesus. Scripture's always made one way to come to God. The only way you come to God from Abraham in the Old Testament, Abraham 15, uh, Genesis 15, 6, where it says Abraham believed God and was credited as righteous. The only way we come is through faith. We come through faith in the Messiah at the foot of the cross, hoping he'll extend grace. And Ruth comes to Jesus, I mean, Ruth comes to Boaz at his feet, hoping he'll extend grace to her. In verse 6, Ruth tells Naomi, I'll do all that you say. Notice she doesn't argue. Ruth is obedient. She follows her spiritual mentor, her spiritual authority, even when it sounds like a terrible idea. Let me ask you, do you have anyone in your life that speaks truth? That may tell you at times things that you do not want to hear, that are hard and challenging, but ultimately are going to be for your good and for His glory. And that's what Naomi does in Ruth is obedient and follows this advice. She goes down there. She waits till he's had his eat and his drink. He lies down. She comes to his feet. Boaz wakes up, finds a woman at his feet, and he's startled. What are you doing here? I'm Ruth. Listen to what she says in verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You're a redeemer. That's what we're hoping for as a, as a redeemer. And she said, spread your wings. Now, if any of you have ever seen a Jewish wedding, Jewish men will wear this. It's called a talit. And everything on it points to God. 
I can walk you through and show you how everything points to God. But the picture at a wedding is a husband spreads his wings over his bride, says, I've got you. You're safe with me. You're, you're going to be okay. And Ruth goes, spread your wings. Spread your wings over me, Boaz. I know I'll be safe with you. Will you embrace me? Will you take me as your own? Will you? She's, she's in a sense, almost proposing here. Hey, will you spread your wings over me? And this is a powerful picture. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, Malachi is the last book in the New Te Old Testament. Last book before 400 years where we don't have any scripture written before Jesus comes. And one of the last prophecies about the Messiah in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says, When the Son of Righteousness comes, He comes with healing in His wings. There's healing in the wings of Messiah. And Jesus would have wore a talit. And there was a woman, oh, she had heard that verse. She knew that verse. She was an outcast. She had been bleeding for 12 years and she was seen as unclean. And in Mark chapter 5, she fights through the crowd and she gets on her hands and knees and she touches the corner of the wings of Messiah and she is healed. There is healing in the wings of Messiah. And Ruth comes and says, spread your wings out over me. Redeem me. And Boaz... Verse 10, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So her first kindness was taking care of Naomi. Okay? Her second kindness was this to Boaz to say, Hey, will you redeem me? Because this sounds quite scandalous. It's a scandalous way to approach. And Boaz, most believe, is around 50 years old. Probably a bachelor. Very financially successful. Very wealthy. He has lots of employees. He's very wealthy. He's an Israelite who's highly respected. One of the leaders of the city of Bethlehem. And here's this Moabite girl, probably around 20. She's a widow. She's poor. She's broken. She's not from Israel. She has almost no hope. Seems like a terrible match. But listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, notice in verse 2, no, chapter 2, we saw that Boaz was called a worthy man. Now, what makes somebody worthy? We talked about this a few weeks. Your worth, you, in and of ourselves, the only worth and value we have is that we are made in the image of God. That's where our worth, that's where our value comes from. But not our ultimate worth, because that image of God has been shattered by the fall and by sin. It's damaged that. No, our ultimate worth and value comes in that we're redeemed by Jesus Christ. And Ruth has trusted Old Testament-style faith in God. And we see here that Boaz too, they're both called worthy, and they're recognized as worthy by all the people around them. So is it a good match? Absolutely. This is a worthy man and a worthy woman who loved the Lord, and everybody sees that, everybody knows that. 
Notice what else Boaz says to her. He says, now my daughter, do not fear. Do not fear. 365 do not fears in the Bible. This is one of them. And this is in the context of a man saying it to a woman. And let me tell you, young men, any girl that you're interested or want to date, you should always be able to say, do not fear, you're safe with me. There should be no fear. And husbands, your wife should have no fear of you. Doesn't matter what culture you're from, what your cultural background is, what the roles in your culture of men and women are. This is above all that. This is what the Word of God says. There is no fear a wife should have for her husband. That is a godless thing. That is a thing that is of sin. That's a thing that someone should repent of and turn the other way. Husbands, if your wife has any fear of you, you need to get on your knees before the Lord and turn to Him and go to your spouse and say, I have sinned against you and I've sinned against the Lord. Forgive me. Because let me tell you, your prayers are going nowhere. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that we are to treat our wives like fine china is the picture. Delicately. And for a man who doesn't do that, his prayers are hindered. Hindered your prayer life. No. You are gentle with your wife. You love your wife. Where I'm from today is what's called Valentine's Day. I don't know how many cultures celebrate that. It's a man-made holiday. But a wife should know that her husband loves her and should taste that and experience that. And it shouldn't be just one day a year. It should be an ongoing basis. And men, it doesn't matter if you think, well, my wife's just a little sensitive. She shouldn't have uh, these fears. No! God has given you to her. You love her and who she is. And women, if any of you here today have fear in your marriages, I would encourage you to talk to our elders. Talk to a woman. You need to talk to somebody. This is not how God has arranged it. And you need help. And in a room this size with this many marriages, I know there's marriages that are hurting. I know that for sure. And if your marriage is hurting, you need to repent, turn to the Lord. Marriage is one big glory war. You die to yourself to live for another person. You wake up the next day and you die to yourself to live for another person. So singles, a lot of times we get excited about marriage and we think we can't wait, life will really start when we're married. Well, when you get married, you find out a whole bunch of other sin and you get to die over and over again. That's what it's about. And if you're not ready to do that, I don't want you ready for marriage. And sadly, a lot of people are in a marriage without that mindset. But again, this isn't thus says Steve, this is the Word of God. And if you have a problem with anything I just said, take it up with God's Word. This isn't about culture. It's not about nations. It's not about background. This is what God says, how we love. And I love Boaz. First thing he says to her is, don't be afraid. You're safe with me. You're good. Isn't that comforting? Women, isn't that what you want to hear? Isn't that what you want to feel? Is that safety? This guy loves me. I'm safe under his wings. He's going to take care of me. I'm going to be okay. That's what a godly man does. In verse 12, he recognized, he said, there's another Redeemer who is closer than I. So you've got another Redeemer. He is closer than I am, and He can redeem you. But if not, Boaz says He'll do it. 
Church, we've been redeemed. If you're a Christian, you've been redeemed. But realize this. There was a Redeemer who was closer. Somebody else had you. We're not born children of God. Scripture's clear about that. No, we are born children of wrath. Doesn't feel good to say that, but that's what Scripture says. We're born children of wrath, children of the enemy. And that someone had to go pay a redemption price to that enemy. Sin had its clutches in us. Sin had a hold of us. Sin had dominated us. And someone had to go buy us back. And the price of buying us was a sinless life, taking the sin of the world upon him. And for three hours on that cross, Jesus hung and darkness covered the earth as he took the sin of the world upon him. And something happened. I don't understand it theologically. My brain isn't big enough. But somehow, God the Father and God the Son experienced something they've never experienced as Jesus took the sin of the world upon Him. And God the Father could not be in the presence of that sin. And there was some sort of divine separation there as Jesus took that upon Him. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't do an easy task going to the cross. Oh, the physical beatings that Jesus took, that's not what he dreaded. It was taking the sin of the world upon him as he endured the wrath of the Father. That's what happened on the cross. But here's the glorious news. Jesus took the wrath of the Father, so you don't have to. Jesus took the sin of the world, so you don't have to. Your sin has been paid if you trust Christ. He's paid the price in full. He didn't pay half price for you. He gave it all. He died on the cross for us. And in that death, He was dealing with the wages of sin. Because the wages of sin is death, brothers and sisters. And unless you come to Christ, there is no other way to go. There's no other way to deal with your sin. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't work hard enough. All that falls short of the glory of God. No. We come to Christ. And Boaz tells her, I'm going to go pay the price and redeem you. Church, Jesus has paid the price and redeemed us. That's glorious news. We never outgrow that news. Okay? We never outgrow the gospel. We never go, okay, I've heard the gospel, what's next? No, we need to hear the gospel again. Preach the gospel to me again, again and again, because we want it to get into every nook and cranny of our life where the gospel is what we live by. And Boaz says, I'm going to come back. And the next thing he tells her, he, he protects her reputation. He says, don't let anybody know you're here. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, your reputation is important. But it's not important in the way most of you think. Most of us think our reputation is important because I want people to think well of me. I want people to think I'm smart or I'm talented or I'm gifted or I'm good looking or whatever it may be. That reputation dies with this earth. No. Our reputation that we aspire is a reputation that magnifies Him, that glorifies Him. Where when people see us, they go, I saw a little bit of Jesus in that person. You know that's what the word Christian means? Little Christ. When we take the name Christian, it's a glorious name. It's a beautiful name. But people should look and go, that person looks like a little Jesus. I see Jesus in them. So do I care about my reputation? Absolutely. But only insofar as it glorifies God. 
Do I care if people think I'm strange or odd? Well, my flesh does, but my spirit, no. What I care about is do people see Jesus in this broken shell of a man that God has redeemed and is sanctifying? That should be our great desires for people to see Jesus being glorified in our life. Our lives are to bring glory to Him. And He cares about her reputation and sends her out. But before she leaves, He gives her a deposit. He says, hey, I'm going to fill you with barley. And she has enough barley as she leaves to take care of herself for a long time. And here's what Jesus says to us, church. He says, I'm going away for a little while. I'm going to be gone for a while, but I'm coming back. And here's the guarantee I'm coming back. My Holy Spirit. I give you my Holy Spirit. It's a deposit because I'm coming back for you. And church, He is coming back. The question is, do we live for that? Do we live in anticipation of His return? Is that what motivates us? Is that what we wake up each day going, today I can either live for my glory and my ease, or I can live waiting for Him to return because He's coming back. How long for that day? One of two things is going to happen. Either this old body's going to fall and I'm going to meet Him in glory because to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord, or He's coming back to get me. Either way, it's glorious good news. That's the day we live for. That's the day all these days here on this earth point us toward. Church, that's what we anticipate. That's what we look forward to, is the day that He comes back, the day that we meet Him face to face. But until that day comes, may we be found faithful, laboring not for ourselves, but for His glory and His fame and His name. He gives her this measure of barley as a deposit. She goes back, tells her mother-in-law, look at what he's given, and Naomi says, he's not going to rest until he's taking care of this matter. You can rest assured Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus isn't just sitting up there, kicked back. No, he's living, he's active, he's working in this world in and through his people. We get to be the hands, the feet, the voice of Jesus Christ as he works in and through us until the day that he comes back. Do you long for that day? Do you live for that day? Do you think about that day? Do you dream he is coming back? One day he's going to come back. And today, I get to live in anticipation of that day. Well, church, next week, we get a glorious picture of him coming back. Because Boaz, he's going to go take care of things. He's going to go pay that price. And he's going to come back to get his bride. And Jesus is coming back to get his bride to church one day. So church, may we faithfully and joyously live for that day. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Your word is good and it's true. It's sufficient. Lord, forgive us for all the false idols and false gods and false comforts we run after. They're never going to satisfy our soul. They'll always leave us broken and empty and ultimately in a worse place than when we started. But you never let us down. You are faithful to us even when we're faithless. You are with us in our darkest hour. Even when we can't sense you, you are there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You are faithful. And Lord, this old enemy, 
This defeated enemy, you beat him on the cross, but yet he's got a leash and he's running around. This old enemy wants to deceive us and trick us to get us to believe lies because he's the father of lies. But Lord, our hope and our joy is found in no one else but you. So Lord, may we be reminded of that because we're about to leave. We're going to go home. We're going to go to our places of work. And Lord, the lies are going to start. And the enemy's going to want to distract us. But Lord, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray for this church. I pray for those who are hurting. I pray for those who are broken. I pray for those who are grieving. I pray for those who are rejoicing. I pray that we find all our hope and joy in our Savior Jesus until the day that you return or bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.